Welcome to the next podcast from Melanoo.info. This episode is with Lena Stein, who's based in the west of Ireland. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters of this podcast, The Essential Hat and Louise McDonald Milliner. We'd also like to welcome the Hat Academy as our latest Patreon supporter. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Lena. Thank you for letting me come and visit you today in Ireland. Uh, Lena, and I just thought we'd start off by hearing about how you first got into hats. Well, it's uh, it's like how does anybody get into anything? Um, it's your mother that tells you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, always I'd always been doing hands, handy things, knitting, sewing, cooking, uh, gardening. And my mother said, oh, Lena, you should do something with your life, love, and why don't you do this course in TAFE of millinery? So off I went in East Sydney Tech and never, ever had a moment of saying, no, this isn't for me or this is too much, nor did I have a moment of thinking, oh, this is what I've always wanted to do. It was a natural sort of submergence into this other world of all sorts of things, fashion, history, vintage styles. You'd collect all the images out of all the magazines and the libraries and just have a database of past styles and uh, still do that. So nothing much has changed. (laughs) (laughs) And so you went to the East Sydney Tech. Is that, how long did that last for and what was the Well, that was, uh, at the time, it was only, I think it might have been a two-year course at the time. Mm -hmm. But I think the year, I I was there for a year and a half because we left after, but it was very, very intense. We did flat patterns, we did felt, we did straw. Now, I can't remember doing buckram because it is, say, a good... 27 years ago, <laughs> getting old, but, um, but I did a lot of other work experience with fashion people like Annabelle Ingle, um, did work experience at the Australian Opera, I did another weekend course with this lovely lady who came to a Strathfield High School. And she'd bring all her own blocks along for the day and there'd be all sorts of people doing all sorts of projects, making hats for their weddings and all that. So I got lots of different input from all sorts of different angles. The opera was interesting because you learnt about distance and how to perceive things, how to actually look at a product. You know, if you look at it too closely, you don't see it. You have to have distance there and and seeing how they make their costumes and they paint on their old jackets and on up close it looks like a mess but from the audience looking up you'd be going wow that's really beautiful brocade but it was just hand painted so that's very interesting you know this blending in a bit of it's a little bit of intrigue and seduction and deception all gets put in together, doesn't it? Yeah. And then from there, how did you, when did you launch your own label and start to make your own designs? Well, we, my, I was married at the time uh, to an Irishman and we then came back to Ireland. My daughter might have been about two. And I remember going, he, we lived in Dublin and at the time... This was pre-boom, so there were very nice boutiques, but not many of them around. And we used to go around, I might have made, say, five or six hats, 
had them in a hat box and you'd go to the shop and say, would you be interested? And so also I had a stand at a market once a week and people were buying them. Probably they were a bit cheap, but it doesn't matter. It's You get feedback and you yeah. go, oh, okay, well, this is working. We'll try and go into a shop, you know. Yes. And then it kind of grew and um, my ex-husband, he was... He used to go around with long hair, long beard, but very sort of good fun, you know, have the banter, yeah. as they say. And the shop owners or the women in charge, they liked their men. And he, <laughs> he could interact with the girls very nicely. And he was, we were getting orders then. And I think it would have been shortly after came up with the name. And my brother-in-law, he did label designs, he was a printer, so he came up with the font. And that's how it sort of all started, I suppose. And we ended up leaving Dublin, moving to the middle of the country, the Midlands, and again supplying, doing mainly wholesale. Um, we didn't know anything about business or running a business, no knowledge whatsoever. So looking back, one could have been a bit more... Uh, sort of calculating differently. However, it's a really good experience and you do spread your name that way because uh, they'd be in all sorts of boutiques and uh, people would buy them. And then you get reorders on, can, you, can we have this style and this colour to match the lady's outfit? So things like that were happening. Um, a year or two later, we, I think my, maybe Nora, my eldest, would have been about four. So we're in west of Ireland at this point and I was working from home and someone got a knock at the door and it was someone from the council and saying, oh, you can't work from home, you don't have a planning permission. So we found a shop in Castle Bar, which is the next town here. And at the time things were very, very cheap. Rents were peanuts and we got a very good lease. And so I started a hat shop, which was great fun. You know, um, you can dress it and do with it what you like. You worked in the back. You could even sleep upstairs if you needed to. And uh, they, that was sort of the beginning of the boom here. And you'd yeah. be making hats. In Ireland, they love wearing hats to weddings. And they're huge wedding accessory, very important. So I'd be making hats for all the weddings of, say, 50 kilometres radius. Because in Ireland, there was maybe four milliners at the time, very few. So, yeah, I was one of them. And now when you're making hats, are you making hats for a similar kind of clientele? Yeah, I, I'd be doing, I wouldn't be doing wholesale anymore. Mm -hmm. That stopped uh, because Chinese imports and, you know, more competition. So they were, the shops were doing more sale or return kind mm -hmm. of concept, which I don't agree with. Because if you're offering something handmade, it should be treated with that kind of respect. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I do all bespoke now. So yeah. someone would come getting an outfit made or a dress or have one and I'd make up a hat specifically for them, you know, as we all do. Uh, they would come and try on a few pieces and or most of them would be half made. Yeah. And then I might even sort of pin a few other bits together and say... You know, it's all about visualisation. And then they'd come back for a fitting, it would be half sort of done, a bit like a tailor's outfit. Yes. Same process. Yeah. 
and then they might have to come again. Hopefully not, but then in the end they have their hat. Yeah. Yeah. And mostly for weddings, they went into races as well? Yeah, weddings, mainly weddings and the odd big race meeting or ascot, but generally it's weddings, yeah. mainly, yeah. Uh, and then I, as well as that, I teach. So I've been teaching for 12 years now and that came about it was another one of these dive into the deep end moments. Um, never taught before, and a very good friend of mine who is a craftswoman herself in the area, she suggested I should pass on some skills and I'd be good at it, you know. Yeah. And she was right. <laughs> so I, my first class was with 12 students, never wow. taught before, and I had a really bad flu. I thought I was going to pass out, but I saw what they made at the end. It was like, oh. Not, they, under, they understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> Did you have a course structure? Did you have a plan going in, or it was just a group of people interested in finding out? No, there was a subject that we did have two two days and two different topics. One was uh, free forming felt, like really abstract. Yeah. And the other day, I think, was making cinema headpieces. So a bit more slightly structured. But time in one day, it's hard to do a lot. You can't do yeah. much. But a lot of these people um, had already done tailoring. It was in a tailoring school, so they knew how to sew. They were making additions to their own collection, so to speak. So, no, it was very exciting. And I thought, oh, that's not bad. I I'll see if there's anyone else interested. And as it happened, it was just at that time happening in this country that people were getting more interested in using their hands yeah. and rediscovering craft and what in education they didn't get, you know, because schools generally wouldn't have, don't teach sewing or knitting. Or, so it was really good. Anyway. And you um, now have a space within your studio where you teach um, from your home studio. Yes. And how are your classes structured differently now because it's obviously changed as you've gone along? Yeah, well now I'd be offering... Uh, again, be topic-based classes. So, but even within that, there'd be beginners, intermediate, advanced. I have one day to basically ten days, depending. Then I also work around what the student might want to learn, to a certain extent. And, and but definitely it would be following my procedure. So I'd have how the class day is done, I'd have it in my head. Yes. Um, they get notes, I tell them in advance, now we're going to do this and this and this today, and then you're going to get homework. And they look at me and go, I said yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unnecessary. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then the next day will be, first of all, usually just say if it's a, a beautiful buckram hat that needs a nice lining, because I know from my own experience, logically you'd be making a hat first and then the lining is the last thing you make. But when you do a, a three-day course or teaching a two-day one, you know if that's the last thing you learn, you're going to forget it because it's five o'clock. You're mm. already thinking about leaving. You're not, you're not there anymore. So we do, we kind of shift around the structure a bit to a bit like cooking. When you cook a dinner, you do your dessert first. So that's that's what I like to say. We're, we're doing a, a, a feast. 
<laughs> you make beautiful pleated and gathered linings. Where did you pick that technique up from along the way or how has that developed? I was teaching this lady, Bobby Heath. She's in, in England as well. She came over many, many years ago and she had this beautiful hat. She's a fantastic milliner. And she took the hat off and I saw this lining and it was gathered and it was just so beautiful. And up, up till then, you'd be making your own 12 pleated lining and, you know, a lot of work. And I never asked her how she did it. I just, I, I remembered it. And then years later, I was teaching a group of ladies and we were doing the lining of the normal 12 pleats. Or, and this girl said, oh, I went to Rose Corey and we did it slightly different. So did the same, you know, the bias strip. And she somehow, she did her own little gathering stitch. But uh, it's the gathering stitch that you can have fun with. And that's what I tell people. I say, make up your own. You can do anything. You can go up, down, over and out and back through and over and out and again. <laughs> but as, as long as it's even and neat, it'll look good. Yeah. So everybody sort of comes up with their own idea. But uh, I have to say... A hat without a lining is sort of like being half naked. <laughs> not quite done. <laughs> You're not quite there. But because it's when you take the hat off and you put it on the table and it might be the plainest on the outside, might be the most simple and people look at it and they, they want to eat it. And they sort of melt as they're looking at this lining. Wow. You know, and you go, and I'm really proud. I go, yes. You know. And that's just the je ne sais quoi. It's that little touch, you know, that makes it all worth it. Do you develop a collection or are you just making hats as the design comes to you or what's your process for that? Uh, it's usually hats as the design comes to me, but out of that you get another idea that, that it's all re related that would then become a collection. It's either through colour or through shape or through a trimming. Um, or even through the lining, for example. You know, you could that could be also part of a collection. There's an idea. Okay, just have it. <laughs> She's off. She's got <laughs> okay. And what materials do you like working with most? I love felt. Um, especially because it's just malleable in the hands. Mm -hmm. and, but that's experience, you know. It's In the beginning, every you're pinching and you're pulling and you're pulling it too hard and you get holes in it and put dents in it but after after a while it's all about keeping even movement um what can I say it's a bit like playing cricket or tennis it's elbow or shoulder <laughs> movement it's not wrist and hand movement so it's all down to learning and making lots of mistakes yeah, yeah. but definitely felt and nice thing about felt as well you can buy old hats and reuse them wash them in shampoo that's the secret tip yes. okay don't pass it on <laughs> and wash it in shampoo because it's rabbit hair and then you've got another beautiful product to use that you'd never be able to get these days and like that they're usually cheaper as well so I, I just love taking old things and making them new and when you're looking when you're searching for those felts what are you looking for in in the hat when you when you're thinking you might upcycle it I just look at the material, at the felt, that I'm, or the straw. I look at the quality and I go, yep, or colour, yep, that's for me. I can do something with that, you yeah. know.
And even if it's a little hat, you could just do a crown out of this and a brim out of something else, or just do a little hat. You know, but, uh, I even keep the trimmings of the old hats, the ribbons and Petersham's, because sometimes they're, even if they're faded to Kingdom Come, just say an old man's trilby from the 50s, you'd wash it. You don't know where it's been for 50 years. Yes. <laughs> but, but they can make these beautiful vintage styled accessories or trimmings on it, a bit of embroidery, and it looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what is your block collection like? My block collection is, it's varied. It started off with someone from Roselle Market giving me, there's a crown block, because you kind of knew what a block was from TAFE, and then friends of family would be a cabinet maker. His challenge was he copied one, made me one. And then I remember being in Germany after living in Australia at that time, in a market, coming across blocks. They didn't know what they were, you know. An antique shop bought a collection of German blocks for very little. And so like that, you'd start collecting. And when we moved to Ireland, uh, my ex-husband, he saw an ad in the paper for a hat, hat factory in County Cork, I think, was sell auctioning off everything. And he said, come on, let's go down. And we went down and it was a hat factory that used to make hats for the army. And there was all sorts of people there bidding, but no one was bidding for the blocks. I was the only one. They're all going for the drying cabinets because they were smoking fish or... And I kind of regret not going for the drying cabinets. <laughs> would have been a good one to get. But a lot of the blocks I have would be a sim a, the same shape, different sizes, yes. which was a huge bonus, especially for further down the line when you're making hats for shops or for people. Yes. You have the normal crown block in 55, 57, 59, 61, you know, and then you might have varied shapes for trilbies. Um, I had a lot of beret, I have a lot of beret shapes, but between moves, moving houses and stuff, unfortunately a couple kind of lost, got lost, but I still have them, and they'd be make, used for the shaping of the peaked cap. Um, they weren't necessarily used for to block on, they were just, because it was a factory, they would have done the hot press and like, with hatters and for resting, I'd say, and shaping. So I've been using them a lot, which is great. And then over the years, I had went to Boone and Lane and had a few made. And it is an investment, but never dies. And their quality is superb. And one one year they contacted me, maybe about six years ago. They had a huge pile selling off for someone. And I'd been over with a friend and we bought a few. Mm. And then they emailed me a year or so later, look, would you be interested in the rest? Give us a price. Yes. And I got the rest and there were some amazing shapes that I believe were the originals that were given to the block maker to make the aluminium shapes. Ah, yes. The positive or something. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. no pin marks, nothing. So it was like, oh. Some were made in France, you could tell by the numbering underneath. Yeah. You know, so very special backgrounds. And yeah. you'd look, I don't know the story behind each block, but I'm sure they can tell one. Yes. Yeah. Good. And what's your, how's your workspace set up? What's your work studio like? 
Well, the workspace um, is in my conservatory at yes. the moment, but and it's been here for the past oh, 13 years, and it's gone through many different changes. The table, it's always been the same table, but always in a different place. The shelving gets moved, gets added to, the blocks get moved around, because um, you do need change. Sometimes for a while I would have blocked off the entrance from my house to the workroom, so I'd have to leave, go outside to come in again, just for the psychology of going to work. <laughs> but um, it, it varies a lot, and I think that's quite healthy. Um, I'd say it's quite normal in everyone's workspace. You move a table around, you put up different shelving, um, because it's a conservatory and it's very bright. Um, I found things were fading, mm -hmm. so I don't keep materials in it. If I go away, I cover all my blocks up with an old sheet just to keep the sun off. And as well as that, I've draped the ceiling with uh, curtain backing, which blocks mm -hmm. out the UV. So it's less bright and less intrusive. So from that point, you have to be a bit careful with your blocks because too much sun wouldn't be too good for them, I think. But, but I think it's an organic space, even if it's really, really tidy. I clean it up within 10 minutes. It's sort of, it's a, things sort of find themselves back where they were 10 minutes prior. And you go, I thought I'd just put you away. <laughs> How did you grow legs? Yeah. It's like I, uh, the studio of Francis Bacon in Dublin. It looks absolutely chaotic, but you can tell it's organised. So that's, I, I have organised chaos in a way. But I, I do like it when it's tidy. <laughs> And having your workspace connected to your house, we'll separate the two, yeah. how do you find structuring your week around that and having your workspace so close to home? It can be a bit of a challenge because you have to be very strict in your head in a way, have to have your day structured, that you get up, you might look at your emails, have a cup of tea, fiddle around and then you go to work. But of course, you're always, you come back in for your lunch or your tea, oh, I've got to put some, it does interfere, the home life does kind of interfere and I really do miss having a physical outside space where you go to and you focus 100% on what you're doing um, rather than getting, I get sidetracked very easily. So. <laughs> but I think we're all the same. <laughs> and what's your next project? My next project... Well, I've been, last year, uh, through an artist friend of mine in town, he's a florist, and he wanted to do a, a big sort of Ukrainian headdress with flowers, you know. But he didn't, he's very good, but he didn't know how could they all just stand up. And so we worked on sort of a wireframe, make a hairband, and so he could interweave them and he made this glorious thing and from that another artist who's Alice Ma who's a very amazing artist she contacted me just before I was going to Australia and saying now she's making a movie and she needs a hat that looks like the Tower of Babel and could I come up with something now she, she just gave me a picture of a, a tapestry and then I sort of she googled a few other pictures of um, Muslim old shrines in Iraq that are done like a tower. 
and it was that was a really good challenge in fact so it opens up your mind to doing I don't doing things you wouldn't even do for yourself but nearly like engineering <laughs> so it was like oh that's really interesting and I really enjoyed it and I gave it to her and then I went to the premiere and it was this is a new one so I wouldn't I'd like to look at more maybe work more with other people of different areas and collaborate uh, yeah and I've got a few ideas up there um, I love the traveling aspect of my work yes um, travel to Australia because I'm Australian and I love teaching and traveling to America I wouldn't mind doing Europe actually I would, Travel is the best thing, <laughs> and I love teaching, so yes. it's a great thing to do together. And you meet meet amazing people. Wonderful. Yeah. I think it's a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much, Lena, for allowing me to come and talk hats with you. Well, thank you, Lauren. It's been really lovely. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Millinery.info with Lena Stein. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters of this podcast, The Essential Hat. Louise McDonald Milliner, and the Hat Academy. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can find out more information on our website. It's a great way to spread the word about your business or upcoming event with milliners. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, we encourage you to share it with a friend. And remember to check back in the feed to see if there's any other podcasts you might have missed. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon.